Welcome to another message in God's wonderful Word. Here at the Hillsdale Bible Church, we aim to learn God's way that we might live God's way. May the words you hear today draw you closer to Him. Open your Bibles and your heart as we learn together in this message. Let's go to Psalm 103. This is our fourth approach here to our study of the buckets of God's mercy. Uh, He showers upon us. Um, It's a fascinating study. And what I like about it especially is the depth that he takes us in this psalm to understand who we are and why we need this mercy. And we're going to have a a big dose of that here tonight. In this one, I actually call it the need of his mercy. And um, it's not not a tack-on. It's not an option you can choose if you want, you know, in the Christian life. This is either we have this mercy or we don't. And if we don't have this mercy, we're in trouble. Uh, It's that kind of mercy. And it's the one that the Lord speaks so much of in Scripture that he has provided for us. So... Tonight we're going to look at uh, verses 9 and 10, Psalm 103. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Hmm. Good words. Let's uh, ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we have your word again in front of us, and thank you, Lord, for it. We're trying to understand your mercy in our study. We pray that you might uh, challenge us again here tonight, that we might get a clear view of who you are and what you have done for us. Show us our need, I pray. Tonight, as we spend time in these two verses, show us our need, that we might uh, join with this psalmist as he began this very chapter. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless your holy name. Bring us to that point again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now there's prominent words here. When you read verse 9 and 10, they're not really happy verses in some senses uh, because it speaks of his anger and it speaks of strife and it speaks with about sins and it speaks of iniquities. And if you look at those words, sin and iniquity, what's the word in front of both of those? Our sins, our iniquities. It gets a little uncomfortable at this point already, doesn't it? This is addressing a problem that we really have. Uh, The character of man is not a happy topic. And I know that. Uh, uh, 
we study it in theology. We see words and verses in scripture that tell us of the nature of man. And they, they tend to tack terms onto that to describe uh, to what degree has man been affected by sin. Well, the wages of sin is death. That's a simple verse, isn't it? Um, in theological circles, uh, they use such terms as total depravity. Total. That sounds pretty complete, doesn't it? Total depravity. How, how, how deep is that? When I was a, a student at uh, Southeastern Bible College in Birmingham, uh, I had Doctrine 101. <laughs> that sounds like the very basics, doesn't it? And uh, Dr. John Talley was the teacher, and he walked us through the topics of... of uh, it was just basically a, a, a Christian uh, discipleship program. Who are we? What have we done? What has Christ done for us? And things of that nature. And when he got to this topic, he gave this definition. He says, Our sin nature, called the old man in the Bible, has the natural tendency towards sin, inclined, bent that way, given the choice to sin or not to sin, it would choose to sin every time. The nature of man... Given the option to choose to sin or not to sin, it would choose to sin every time. Now, we talk about sin, and how does it affect man? Uh, you know, it does much more than just affect the body. Uh, when Adam and Eve were told, don't eat of that tree, what was the consequence? What did God tell them would happen if they ate of that tree? You would die, right? You would surely die. And that's the very thing that Satan said, no, you won't die. They did it. They bit of the fruit. And uh, that death included so much more. Understanding where they were, they were at that time, they had no concept of death. Nothing had died. They lived in a world where it wasn't, uh, it wasn't under that kind of a curse. There was no death around them. They had no idea. And physical death was a whole new concept that they, they all of a sudden learned the hard way. But it was much more than physical death, wasn't it? It was spiritual death, too. And Scripture shows us very clearly that it's a spiritual problem, and that kind of death is not temporary. Spiritual death is forever. It's an eternal death, and, and it's a frightful thing and all that. Now, we can understand that, and we can say, yeah, we, we understand the whole thing that the, the body just wears down as it goes. Um, death is uh, the results that come from that. We know about disease. We know about all those factors, too. But do you realize how much, how much of man has actually been touched by sin? Here's the, some of the pictures I have for you here tonight. Uh, Scripture tells us our minds are depraved. Our minds. The minds, it says in Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles walked, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. Their minds were depraved. Unbelievers. Depraved minds. Absolutely incapable of understanding spiritual things. Makes me so thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit to, to help us see. Because we couldn't. 
that, that's one thing. The second thing the scripture tells us, our hearts are depraved. Our hearts, it says in Matthew fifteen nineteen, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witness and slanders. Those are the words of Jesus. Does he know the heart? Yes, he does. And he says it's the heart that's also affected by sin. Uh, the will. Our will. You know, for all the talk we, we, we put in sometimes for the, the will of man, I know my will. And I don't like it. I know which way it's going to go every time. Given its chance, the will is heading the wrong direction. The will. James says this in chapter 4, verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wills to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Guess which way our, our wills desire? It also goes toward enmity with God. Our conscience. Is our conscience affected? Here's the one from Titus 1.15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their mind and their conscience is defiled. Little Jiminy Cricket doesn't help at all, does he? He can't help you with these kind of decisions. The conscience is also defiled. Now, we've got a terrible situation here. Not just the physical part and the spiritual part of a man is, is affected by sin, but the way he thinks, the way he feels emotionally, the way he plans and he wills, the way he, he has a conscience. It's all touched, isn't it? We're in a bad spot. That's a really bad spot when you've got it to that degree. I'll give you the biggest picture of this, and this verse is alarming to me. It's in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6, this, this little verse here. Verse number 5. You might want to look at that. Genesis 6, verse 5. This is the Lord's view of the world after uh, the sin of man. And God looked down upon this world, and it says in verse 5, the Lord, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that, here it comes, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now that covers every single aspect of this picture. The, the Hebrew reads it this way, Jehovah saw that the men of the earth were abundantly morally depraved. That's Hebrew. Abundantly. How do you get more depraved than just depraved? Abundantly morally depraved. It says that every, every impulse, the whole of the impulse of the inventions of his heart, were only morally depraved the whole day. What he meditated on, what the impulse, what his tendency, what his inventions, his design, his will, his art. It's actually using this. It's a work of art. It's bad. But it was, it was, it was everything he designed was only evil all the day long. Would you like them for neighbors? 
this crowd is a terrible crowd. Well, that's a picture of depravity, which we really don't see it often because we we see some good things that man does, and we we have also learned over the years how to cover up an awful lot. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Those are alarming verses, I know. But those verses stand before us here as we talk about the character of man. You add to that, not just what our condition would be in external and internal, spiritual and physical, but add to it that we live in a corrupt world, don't we? You put the corruption of the world around a person like this, and then you add to it the, the fact that this world is condemned, and so are we. Sin is condemned by God, and we are controlled by sin, and this world is controlled by sin, and we conform ourselves to it. Romans 12 speaks of that. Do not be conformed to this world, right? So we've got a super, super big problem when we go through this whole picture. In other words, we already have this bent toward it. We're already bent on the inside toward it. We're submerged in a culture of sin from the outside. And how much does Satan really have to do to entice us to sin? I mean, to me, it, it pictures a guy standing right on the edge of a cliff, and he's leaning this way. How much do you have to do to push him over? There's a picture of it. It's not good. It's not good at all. Now, I've got a, a, a picture I like to use because when I read in Scripture uh, the idea that for all have sinned and missed the mark, missed the glory of God, fall short of the glory of God, there's a picture of that, and you've heard it, I don't know, many, many times, the picture of an archer, right? It really is a, a Greek concept uh, of shooting at a target, missing the mark to fall short of the glory of God is an archery term. And we used to use this with our, our youth group just to impress them with the concept. Uh, we, we set up a, a uh, on the whiteboard in the youth room, we set up a target. Right? It looked like a bullseye, the whole thing. And uh, we said, okay, we're going to uh, test your skills at hitting the target with a beanbag. And they thought, well, that's pretty easy. It's just a standard size room. You know, we'll just toss the beanbag there. It says, no, you've got to have some of the handicaps that come with sin. So we actually turned them around backwards and sat them in a chair, and they weren't allowed to look at the mark. And they had to throw over their shoulder and try to get the, the beanbag to hit the target. Well, we were their, their cheerleaders, all right? Since they couldn't see what they were aiming at, they would sit there and they'd just toss this beanbag. And every time they missed, we'd yell, Sin! <laughs> and that was getting very pronounced by the end of the, the program. Because we just kept, Sin! 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 And they said, What happens if we hit it? We said, We'll give you another toss. Because <laughs> more than likely, we're going to do it, aren't we? We're going to miss. We're going to miss. We're going to miss. And that was the impression that we gave to him. Well, the, the concept of an archer is very accurate in this term. And um, it demands precision, obviously. It demands uh, um, four items in order to make it work right. A person, the bow, an arrow, and a target. Sounds easy, doesn't it? We've even watched them before, and we said, oh, it looks pretty easy, until you try it yourself, and you see it's not as easy as, as it really looks. But c 
consider this, an archer about to uh, shoot at the target. But he's got some, some challenges. Number one, he's in a bent position. All right? Picture a crooked archer. All right? He's bent. Second, he's got bent vision. It's not very good. He can't see that far. Somewhat blurry. He's aiming for that. I, I know that story very well. Can't quite see the target. Right? That's the second problem. His, his reasoning is affected. His mind is affected too. His skills, obviously. He cannot discern the distance with his mind. Is that a problem? Alright? His strength is not quite what it used to be. Physically, he just can't quite pull it back far enough. He doesn't have the strength that he needs in order to shoot the arrow far enough. That's a problem. His desire, he's not even sure he wants to hit the target. He's just not in a mood to, to, to actually aim for that target. And then, on top of all those problems, hand him a bent arrow. And give him a bow that's also warped. So what do you have? You've got a real problem here. Number one, you don't want to be the guy standing by the target. <laughs> when this guy shoots, you don't know where it's going to go, do you? That's a problem. That's a problem. Now, I'm going to turn this into a spiritual picture for you all of a sudden. Because we attempt, as Christians, we attempt to reach a certain standard that we believe God would be pleased with us, right? Mentally, I think we tend to do that. We think, well, there's a certain way we've got to do this and do that. And we want to be honoring to God and we want to please Him. So we have this standard set in our mind. All right? Picture it. Whatever it is. Got a standard? This is what I should do today or reach to in order to please God. Let's start with this fact. We start from a bent position. We aim for the best church to be a member of, the best doctrinal statement, the best teachers. We, we jockey for the best position to be in that church, that we may reach the standard of God's holiness. Does that sound like we're off already? Way off base, for starters. That's a problem. And then, we gather up all the best Bible study tools we can. We strive for the most clear and exact understanding of Scripture in the hope that he who knows the most has a better standing with God. What do you think so far? I added something to the end of that that makes you start to think, uh, what's this guy doing, right? We, we, we think that by collecting these things, we know the most. And that will give us a better standing with God. And then we try to reason our way to God's standard. And the more we reason with the standard, the more it seems that the standard needs to be lowered. I believe, personally, that the contemporary church we live in now has compromised so much on the truth that we cannot think biblically, we, we think politically, we think in terms of tolerance, we think in terms of self, we think in terms of self-esteem, we think in terms of fairness and equality. We do not really reason biblically. We cannot properly reason the distance. Where is the standard anymore? Where is the standard? And then we try to reach that position, which we realize we can't do it, but we try to do it with clear understanding and rational thinking. And if we can't do that, we make up what with pure brute strength. 
I mean, what's one of the best tools in the box? A hammer, right? So we say, well, if I cannot reach it from my mind, maybe God will notice my effort. Does he reward us extra points for that? If we use effort to reach a place to meet his standard. Can't we get credit for the effort and the energy that we put into pleasing him? So we attempt that. But whose glory are we actually seeking? When we're aiming for God's standard, do we really want to please him? Or do we want to be recognized as somebody who made it? That's where it starts to get personal, doesn't it? And then, if we can't hit the target, are we really sure we wanted to hit that target? Maybe we're content with being like everyone else and fitting in with everyone else. And, you know, maybe, maybe in our day, it's wrong to hit the target. Because if you hit the target, obviously you're going to discourage somebody who can't hit the target. And we don't want to go discouraging people, do we? I've heard that logic given before. And that's a very sad road to go down. To say, well, we don't want to discourage anybody else. So if we miss, that's okay because other people around you will console you. And you can console them and everyone's happy because no one hits the target. Sad, isn't it? Where's the standard now? The standard keeps lowering. And of course, our deeds, let's consider them bent arrows for a minute. Even at their best, our deeds can never erase our failures, can they? Even at their best. Our righteousness, Isaiah said, is as a filthy rag. Not a pretty picture. best we have is a bent arrow and a bent bow. For the tools that we try to use cannot make up for our deficiencies. There isn't a perfect program out there that can cause us to hit God's holy standard. No such thing. We go through these things, you know, I looked at this from a church kind of mentality. Our position, our vision, our minds, our strength, our desires, our tools, they all are attempts to reach the glory of God. And if we insert any part of man in that picture, it's going to fail. Because man's already bent in the first place. we got a problem, don't we? I'm just walking you through something. Because when I start talking about the mercy of God, oh boy, does it look beautiful next to this. It does. Now, I don't, I don't preach the, the depravity of man to depress anybody because I'm depressing myself. <laughs> I mean, just going through it, it's like, yuck, this is me too. Um, but I tell you the truth, I am not content with any other doctrine that gives man more leverage in dealing with our enemy sin. Man doesn't need that leverage. Uh, the more you elevate man and his ability to solve his need, the more you diminish the message of the cross. And the more you, you, you separate away from this whole story, the glory of God, because of his mercy. I like God's mercy. And I like the message of that cross. And I'm not going to put man anywhere in the picture because I want God to get the credit. Not man. You see, we can set man at his absolute worst here because then we see the character of a loving and merciful God and how he's bestowed upon us all that we need that we could call him our father 
that we could be children, children of God. See, the sins are ours. We saw that in the verse, didn't we? It's our sins in verse 10. It's our iniquities. And so we need mercy. We need mercy. There's no other way that you can go around this. And so four things are said, actually, in these verses that speak of the character of God. Four great truths right here in front of us tonight. And the first one is, He will not always strive with us. The writer begins. He will not always strive with us. The idea of wrangling with you and controversy and contending and disputes and struggles. You remember Jacob in the Old Testament? The one night he wrestled with an angel all night long. Who was the angel? It was the Lord. He didn't know. Here he is wrestling with him all night long. The angel changed his name. Remember what he changed it to? Israel. Israel. The Hebrew name Israel means I fight with God. How appropriate. (laughs) But that was the name that God gave to Jacob. I fight with God. And so every time I read that name, I kind of chuckle at it when I say, Israel, uh, I fight with God. Most of us wouldn't like that to be their label, I'm sure. We, we Years ago, I was part of a group called IFCA, and it's now IFCA International. It stood for Independent Fundamental uh, Churches of America. Right? I was a part of that group. And we made fun of ourselves. Because we changed that to, I fight Christians anywhere. And and that's pretty much how our arguments went all the time. So we we had fun with that. But it wasn't a a very nice title to wear, was it? Such like that. I fight with God. Notice, he will not always fight. He will not strive with us forever. I'm glad for that. You know, he does chasten us, doesn't he? Scripture tells us so. He chastens us. Oh, wait, what kind of children would we be if he did not correct us? Hebrews has a whole chapter on this in Hebrews chapter 12. It says that actually we would be illegitimate children if he did not treat us with chastening. If that would show he didn't care and we didn't belong to him. But he does chasten us. And we know that's true. But the writer here, we're reading of, we're standing in his sandals. He's saying, I've already received mercy. And that's his position here in verse number one. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. He, he's already been the recipient of this mercy. So he, he's giving praise to God for the mercy because he deserved an eternal spanking. And God did not do that. Aren't you glad for that? That's merciful. He stayed his hand. He does not strive forever. That's very important for us because in John 3.36 it tells us that uh, there's a distinction between the unbeliever and the believer. The distinction is very clear. The unbeliever abides under the wrath of God. In Greek that means it's a continuous thing. A continuous thing. They're always under the wrath of God. The old cartoons, when somebody was having a bad day, what was over their head? That cloud, right? That cloud that walked through. Everywhere they walked, there was this cloud of that. You said, oh, they're having a bad day. This is the unbeliever is always under the wrath of God. That's a powerful picture. 
But that's what John 3.36 tells us. The wrath of God is abiding on him. And that's what we deserve. But the believer has received eternal life. And that's the contrast. He is peace with God. He's been called into a relationship with God. He has received mercy. And God's wrath does not continually abide on him. It's gone. That's a radical change. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and what difference that makes from one position to another is amazing. We're pulled out of darkness and put into light. We're pulled out of the kingdom of, of, of sin and, and captivity and we're given freedom in the kingdom of Christ. And that's so quickly done. Just amazing. I love the picture of it. We see that he does not strive with us forever. It also says he does not keep his anger forever. In verse number 9. He does not keep his anger forever. He doesn't bear a grudge. In other words, that's the Hebrew word here. uh, To guard something. To cherish something. Cherishing a grudge, cherishing anger, that's quite a picture here. Uh, He's not the caretaker of that grudge. Some people, boy, I don't know how they do it. They can live their whole life with a grudge. You ever meet them? People like that? I've I've known people like that. And you always wonder, why don't you just give that up? (laughs) They don't give it up. Uh, We were commenting on this many years ago. there's a cemetery in Plymouth, Indiana, where Kay's family, her grandparents and her uncles and aunts, and they're all from the Plymouth, Indiana area. And they, they were buried there in the cemetery. And so we'd go every year to pull the weeds around the tombstones and set up flowers and all those kind of things. And we did that every year. Usually on Memorial Day, we would be over there cleaning up the cemetery. And Kay's grandfather is buried if you picture up this side and there's a small narrow street between these all this plot and he's buried right here on the edge and his brother is buried right here on the other edge and those two had a grudge that they carried their entire life and they said here in the cemetery is the closest they've ever been isn't that something? And and that that always impressed me was that how can somebody carry something like that so long? Are we grudge bearers? Do we do we keep record of wrongs? We we vow to keep to the death, never to forget. You know, if we're believers, we are. We're acting so inconsistently to the character of our God, aren't we? We're we're not acting like him at all. Uh If anyone could remember our sins forever, guess who could? God could. But what does it say about him here? He will not keep his anger forever. Aren't you glad for those words? What great words those are. He will not keep his anger forever. Does he get angry? Yes. Yes, he does. He gets angry with sin. He gets angry with sinners. He's also merciful. Now, there is a point where God's anger is satisfied. Actually, let's call it a place. There's a place where God's anger is satisfied. What is it? 
called a cross. Isaiah 53, powerful little verse here. It says in Isaiah 53 that the Lord was pleased to crush him. That, those words stop me in my tracks every time I hear them. The Lord was pleased to crush him. The word pleased is satisfied. The Lord was satisfied in this great act of mercy. God directed his anger toward his son and crushed him for us. So that he can look at us and say, I won't remember your sins. Isn't that amazing? This is the kind of mercy that we have received. He doesn't keep his anger forever. And as long as there's a message of the cross, and there will be forever, that's the gospel. It doesn't go away. God will always stay true to this verse. He will not keep his anger forever. Praise the Lord for that. The difference of a cross. God's satisfied. Verse number 10 adds a third thing. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Ooh, boy. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Um, the words in this, this, this Hebrew word for dealt, dealt, has to do with the way he fashions something. He, his, he fashions his actions toward us in keeping with our sins. His, his actions are not like ours, are they? They're not like ours. He is consistent in character. He's right in his actions. We are weak in character and, and unpredictable in actions. When God made us, when he made man, he formed him out of clay. Remember? Out of dirt, dust. The same word is, is in this concept of how he fashioned man, how he worked him, put the pressure with his hand and squeezed and formed this, this clay into man. And the, the psalmist is saying, boy, am I thankful the Lord did not squeeze and press me as I deserved because I've done something wrong. Imagine what those hands could have done if they pressed us in that regard. So instead of pressing us and shaping us as we deserved, he's pressing us and shaping us to conform to the image of his Son. What a difference that is. Isn't that what correction is supposed to be? Correction is not uh, a, a way just to get anger out of a system and make somebody pay for it. But correction is to conform someone, right? To what they ought to be. And that's exactly what the Lord is doing with us. We, he doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we don't deserve. And that is, he's shaping us into the image of Christ. Those same hands that could, that could inflict the punishment are pressing us into the image of Christ so that when we see him, we shall be like him, where we shall see him as he is. These are precious things. What, what kind of mercy is this? Where God doesn't give it to us what we deserve. He doesn't treat us, as one translation says. He does not treat us as we deserve for our sins. But he is making us what we don't deserve to be. And that's like Christ. I, I, I find that very uh, pronounced in this picture of his mercy. Number four, he has not rewarded us according to our iniquities. 
He's not rewarding us. He's not, he's not uh, recompensing us. The actual term is to ripen. <laughs> to ripen. He's not letting us ripen uh, to this point. Galatians. Let's go over there for a minute. I want to show you a couple of words here. Galatians 6, verse uh, 7 and 8. Galatians 6, 7 and 8. Look at these words. I'll find it. Do not be deceived, Paul says. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Is that a true principle? If you go out and plant wheat seed, what are you expecting? Wheat, right? If you get a field full of bananas, you're going to be terribly surprised. Say, how did that happen? Right? For what a man sows, that which that he will also reap. That is very logical to us. But it's also very theologically sound. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall reap from his flesh corruption. For the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. This principle is universal. It really is. We are prone to sow fleshly seeds. Not spiritual. If we go back to our original picture, we're prone. We're bent to sow fleshly seeds. And we will reap a bountiful harvest of fleshly fruit. If we plant seed like that. And we enter into that field willfully, we scatter the seed joyfully, and we heap upon it great amounts of fertilizer, don't we? That's our picture. God knows. He knows what crop we would glean, doesn't he? He knows what fruit will ripen. He knows what a child would be like that's raised on sin. He knows our character thoroughly. He knows the consequences of our action. And he knows that unless mercy steps in, there is no hope. Right? He knows all that. This is a principle that he said. And that's why we go to Ephesians and we see in chapter 2. I say it almost every week, I know. And we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He knows that. And he knows how we walked. We walked according to the course of the world. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air. We walked to the spirit uh, that's now working in the sons of disobedience. We lived there, it says. We lived, formerly lived in the lust of the flesh. We lived in the desires of the flesh. We lived in the desires of the mind. We existed there as children of wrath. So we walked there, we lived there, we existed there. God knew all that. And being rich in mercy... And because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead, and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. This is quite a picture. When we say we need mercy, we need it. (laughs) We need this mercy. We're not going to glean it ourselves. We're not going to produce it, are we? Not with the seeds that we scatter. 
We can never come to mercy on our own strength, in our own wisdom, and from our own minds, from our own hearts, from our own efforts. We can never reach mercy. Thankfully, God brings it to us. This is the way Micah said it. I like these words. Who is a God like thee? These are his first words. Who pardons iniquities, who passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. You need to mark that verse so you see it again. Micah 7.18. That's a good verse to write down somewhere. Who is a God like thee? who pardons iniquities, who passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession, who does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. Now, I want to show you something that's really neat about these words. Delights is the word bent. We started with our bent, right? Our bent towards sin. What's God's bent? He delights in unchanging love. His actions go that way every time. All the time. Toward unchanging love. Toward steadfast love. The uh, English Standard Version says. The King James, it says mercy. He delights in mercy. In giving mercy. This is what God likes to do. It's His pleasure. It's His joy. It's his bent. It's the way he goes. His character. Our character is a bent toward sin. His character is a bent toward mercy. Isn't that a wonderful combination now? That he should do this for us. Oh, I just love it. I, I just look at these words in, in our, our psalm here tonight, and I say, boy, do we need mercy. Because it starts with our iniquities starts with our sins, but it all speaks of God's character, and He is merciful, isn't He? That's the character of our God. We talk about, I talk about buckets of mercy. This is a beautiful way to look at it. I know it's not comfortable when we see ourselves for who we are, but our goal is not to see ourselves here, it's to see Him, a God of mercy. This is a God you worship. This is a God you serve. This is a God that loves you. Are you sure of it? Do you know how much He loves you now? Bless the Lord, He says, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Heavenly Father, thank you for this kind of mercy. Boy, do we need it. You have more than met the need of our heart. You've overwhelmed us with your mercy. There's no one like you, Lord. Micah asked the question, but we have the answer. There is no one like you. And we're so glad we know you. Thank you for what you have done to rescue us, to draw us to yourself, to, to impress upon us these words here tonight and show us once again what you have done for us. We give you the praise for this. We rejoice in it. And thank you, Lord. Bless your name. Help us this week as we go throughout it to remember how great a mercy you have showered upon us. And may our actions look more like 
that which is being conformed to our Savior than that which was conformed to our sin. And I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. You're changing us, and we rejoice in that. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.